Welcome, everyone. So tonight is week six of our class, Buddhist Studies class on karma. And uh, tonight I'd like to reflect on the questions and practice around rebirth. But before we do that, just to check in um, about the meditation tonight and just generally how you've been practicing at home how what you see relates to what you've been learning in your study about karma. And in particular, in the instructions tonight, uh, sort of not necessarily picking up any meditation strategy except to be observing moment to moment how the mind is or how the heart is. And with the intention, of course, which is already there, you know, the intention for things to be at ease or the intention for the mind to be safe. So that caring is already there. The missing piece isn't the intention for the mind or heart to be at ease. The missing piece is, of course, the mind isn't observing carefully how it is that things are getting tight, how it is that things are releasing. So any comments for the group or questions that people have? about the meditation practice. And it's so important to be creative in our practice because we do know we're interested. Like I said, it it doesn't take very much balance of mind to remember that we want to be happy. You know, we have to be pretty distracted to forget that. So then it's just a matter of, uh, like, well, experimenting really with the mind. And like, does the mind want, does the mind need the safety of an object? Or can it, is, does it feel actually more safe, more free, more alive, more happy when it isn't dependent on an object or on a strategy or on anything? And just to explore, not to, it's really important. I mean, it's nice to hear the different techniques and it's nice to try them out. But it's also nice at times, like you were encouraged to do tonight, to uh, just through trial and error, see what you can learn about the mind and about happiness. And feeling empowered that happiness is something to be worked out here and now. Always. You know, in an ongoing way. There's This is really the vigilance in practice is that we're never done. Because whatever happiness we've experienced, that's gone already. You know, and this is the only moment we can be happy. And so to be fully present, to see like how the mind might be engaged in a way that is causing unhappiness or stress, or how the mind might be engaged in a way that's allowing that stress to fall away is relevant. Yeah. Uh, Well, don't you notice when you're overly directive that things get stressful? Right? So that's the whole point. It's okay to be overly directive because you'll see it doesn't help. You know, it will feel stressful. Same thing, even if you're working with a classic technique like mindfulness of breathing, and you'll notice that if there's too much desire to be with the object, that it, it doesn't lead to happiness, it leads to frustration and disappointment and regret. Yes, please. The, the longer of the reading, I can't remember what it's called, came out, the 
sure what, what when you're talking about. <laughs> but I understand what you said. Yeah, and that's the kind of experimentation I was talking about after Susan's comment. Like, the, the trouble with our mind generally, and this is as true in our like relationships out in the world as it is in terms of our more subtle work with our own mind, that we just tend to do what we've always done. You know, so we sit, and immediately we want to go back to the breath. And uh, I think the way the Buddha taught a lot was to help us understand the underlying principles of what we're doing. You know, so the underlying principle is suffering and the end of suffering. That's the relevant thing. And then all of what we're doing is in that context. And the other underlying principle is it's always about the present moment. It's always here and now. So that's helps us to let go of our speculation, and then we get to do that direct experimentation. We've got a mind right now. Let's, you know, and the mind is either engaged in a way that's stressful, or it's engaged in a way that's allowing that stress to dissipate and fall away. So, if that's happening, it can be observed, and we can learn from that observation. So, instead of just doing your meditation technique, add this piece, make sure this other piece is there where you're evaluating how it's going. What's happening? Because otherwise we can do something for a long time. You know, it's the same thing in our relationships with our partners, with our friends. You know, it's like we have to be caretaking that relationship all the time. And you will notice, you know, like when we're doing more harm than good, we'll see the whole thing is falling apart. I mean, the real problem for us is that we go on automatic pilot. We're unmindful, whether it's in relationships or working with our mind or any part of life. We go on automatic pilot, and then we can do really destructive things because we're acting out of our fixed views about things instead of an active engagement, an active learning, where we're seeing directly the effect of how we're relating, what we're doing. And then we have that immediate opportunity to change and try something else, or to make a subtle adjustment. You know, it's like we can do that with our some of our partners some of the time, you know, where we start to say something, and it's like we're really on, well, we can say it again. <laughs> oh, that didn't feel very good. Let me try that again. You know, so that we don't have to, like, just continue on because I've already staked my sense of self with this approach and it's too embarrassing to sort of catch and say, oh, no, no, I was just an idiot. Let me just start over again. And it's really nice and we can do that. It's a lot easier in the silence of our own mind, you know, to realize that, oh, no, that's not it. That's not the way. Let me try something else. And, you know, it wouldn't be wrong to have several times, a dozen, a couple dozen times in the course of even one set, one 45, 60 minute set, to really get to that place where you really don't know. Like, I don't have any idea of how to be skillful right now. Because that humility helps keep us in that present moment dynamic, well, let's see. So instead of reaching back into our, like, oh, this must be right, this is what a teacher said, 
and in doing that just because we're uncomfortable in the not knowing. Instead, we want to do that direct experimentation, like, well, what actually, what actually can help? Right now, I'm feeling the burden of doubt, you know, it feels heavy, it hurts, or it's stressful. What, what helps? You know, how to relate to the way it is now in a way that causes things to open up instead of close down or get heavy. Any other reflections about the sit tonight that come to mind? And it kind of begs the question, where does skill come from? You know, use the word spontaneous. But that's a very interesting question because it keeps us right in the moment. Where does skill, like in a meditation, and the mind does something like, Wendy suggests, spontaneously, forgiveness without an object arose. So where did that come from? What were the causes for that? Because it's nice to know that, it's nice to know in a sense the answer to that question, because it, it helps us allow, it sort of, it helps us sow the seeds for more of that skillful response, if we understand how that happens. And you know, part of, I think, you know, this is my way of articulating it, but it's, the actual experience will be different than my words, but part of what seems to need to happen is, the sense of responsibility that somehow whatever it is we're experiencing, not that we're completely in control, but initially we need to feel uh, that it's skillful to show up to experience, to our experience. Otherwise, why would we? You know, if we, if we have a sense of helplessness or sense of determinism, why would we bother with this practice? There has to be some sense, and we should bring it right into the forefront, that paying attention, showing up, being open, being vulnerable to the way that it is, that it's skillful, that it actually leads to something good. Because, you know, otherwise, for different views, like if we think basically it's a deterministic thing, well then, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense to show up just to sort of ride it out until it's over. But if if there's a place for skill, well then we have every incentive to master that place of skill. But that doesn't mean the idea that I have to be skillful is the direction of this mastery. You know, that may be too heavy of a notion, like I've got to and then the fear involved with wanting to be skillful and afraid that I'm not going to be skillful and I should be able to handle this grief. And So we'll learn. I mean, we have to bump our head against that over and over and over before we it dawns on us that that's not the way. Anything fear-based, anything greed-based, and any kind of resignation or giving up is not the way. And we get that down into our bones by having done all of those three strategies you know, too many times to count. Any last comments about the sit? Time for one more. Yeah, Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> what came to my mind, Barbara, is something I heard you say that you're doing. And it, what came to my mind is, oh, we can be doing that right now. Like, now, listening to me a few minutes ago, listening to Barbara, 
that that just to see that we're all all in this process of one or another, and we're in this process, this very fluid process where things come in and out of balance all the time, and uh, and then you know when things are in balance, we tend to space out because they're in balance instead of appreciating the balance and, and continuing to that that uh, beautiful investigation or that beautiful compassionate interest in how it is, how the balance is. You know, we normally wait until we're out of balance to get interested. But then, of course, because we're out of balance, the interest is charged with aversion. Like, I don't like to be out of balance, and I really want to get the greed of I want to get back in balance. And so just, like, when we're in a relatively good place, that's the time. That's why we do, that's why we develop the practice of meditation, because we're in a relatively good place, hopefully, as opposed to out in the world being agitated by things. And we can learn to maintain the sense of responsibility, this, this beautiful caretaking of the mind, balanced caretaking of the mind. So then, you know, we're just, and it is this amazing process of kind of getting pulled into hell and returning to heaven and really learning what it has to teach us. But the teaching only happens, the lessons only come, when there is that ongoingness to the mindfulness. Because then we see it as a process. And we learn to trust it. You know, we're just trusting it more and more. I'm much better at this than I've ever been in terms of uh, just uh, not afraid of wherever my mind goes. You know, and whatever inclinations arise in the mind and, and uh, you know it's like my mind it almost feels like well let's see what I can do to shock mark <laughs> <laughs> but even that you know it's like uh, yeah just, just this strong sense that you know observing being interested in suffering and the end of suffering is the only relevant thing and uh, Anyway, I want to go on so we I can say a few things before we break into small groups tonight. Thanks for all your sharing. The Buddha has a phrase that he said in a couple different ways around uh, karma, around death. He says, not in the sky, not in the midst of the sea, not if we enter into the clefts of the mountains. Is there known a spot in the whole world where a person might be free from an unwholesome deed or a wholesome deed or death? These are the different ways the Buddha's used that phrase. So there's certain things that we can't hide from. And so that's just an interesting reflection. Generally, it scares us when we think back on the unwholesome things and and this is uh, tonight in the larger context of not just this lifetime, but maybe future lifetimes, past lifetimes. Just how we hold or how we use the teachings on rebirth. It's easy to reject them. In a way, it makes sense to reject it because, you know, we tend to, you know, even in this tradition, we tend to emphasize pragmatism and, we only base our understanding on what we directly see. But some things, 
it's interesting, there's Ajahn Tendisaro, um teaches this, I think, in a useful way, you know, in terms of faith, his teachings, how he talks about faith, that some things we can't actually discover without faith. Like some things we can sort of see the outlines and have faith because we have some information. But other things, there's no way you're ever going to see them without initially having some faith. Does that make sense, the difference? Because without that faith, you, you don't look in a particular way. And without looking in that particular way, you're never going to see it. So, in terms of rebirth, which I'm assuming for most of us, we don't directly see. We don't have even sort of vague facts that maybe some, but not too many, certainly no rigid or no kind of solid facts that tell us that there have been previous lives or future lives, or even what that means. And uh, depending on how much time we have tonight, but also next week, I'll go into this a little bit more, how uh, it's talked about in the Buddhist tradition. But some of the things the Buddha teaches, we can know directly. You know, we can directly see that, you know, when we cultivate generosity, our life starts to work better. When we become pretty regular in mindfulness practice, you know, so many things in our life works better. I mean, over and over again, we can get direct results in our own life where we see what this person said actually works, and that can be the cause for faith to arise. Another way to hold uh, this whole teaching on rebirth is to ask yourself, not so much, do I believe it, do I think it's true, but maybe more appropriately, is it skillful? Is it actually skillful to work, to have sort of a working belief in rebirth? Or is it skillful, is it more skillful, skillful in the sense, does it lead to happiness, in a, a resonant happiness? Does it, is it more... Uh, leading onward to happiness, to think that, no, there's just this life, kind of a materialist view, there's just this life, and then when the body dies, that's it. Things just cease. The mind ceases, the body ceases, and it's over. In terms of being skillful, in terms of living in a way that leads to happiness, what view is skillful? See, it's a, it's a different way of looking at it. And I think it's a very pragmatic, useful way to look at it. Let's use views that actually lead to happiness. And this again is it, exactly how the Buddha taught. He put suffering and the under uh, the end of suffering right at the core, and basically said nothing else is relevant. Get interested in suffering and the end of suffering, stress and the end of stress, and all the other parts of life will start working better. You know, a lot of us think, you know, it's that simile of the burning house, you know, where we're in the middle of a burning house, it's burning down, and we're trying to figure out how it started, instead of getting out of the house. And this is the same thing, you know, is there rebirth? We could get countless, you know, degrees in Buddhist philosophy or other kinds of philosophical systems to, to understand these things in conceptual ways, like, what makes sense, or how we can have a tight 
argument that nobody could defeat about this view or that view. But it doesn't mean we're going to be happy. So when we use views, you know, the, it, the barometer should be, does it support happiness? Does it seem to lead onward? So I think those two things, you know, we don't know, but what this person has said, some of what this person has said we really do know. We have directly seen in our, our own experience that it's true. And he also says this, so I'm going to keep an open mind about that. I'm going to hold it lightly as if it might be true. So that's one. And the other is, well, what view, what's the alternative, alternative view, and is it skillful? And that's some of the things you, that's one of the things you could talk about in your small group is to look back on your life, conscious and unconscious views about death and what happens at death. Now, Buddhism is sort of tricky in that regard, as some of you know, because, you know, that's why we generally in the Buddhist tradition don't use the word reincarnation, because it seems to imply that there's a somebody that gets reincarnated. So we talk about it more in this impersonal term of rebirth, rebirthing. There is a rebirthing. And the way that it's described is, in a way that's not any different than how we take rebirth at each moment. Because, of course, each moment is ceasing. You know, 8, 27, and 59 seconds ended. And now it's, you know, 8.30 or 8.28 and a couple seconds. But that moment ceased, and there was a rebirth into the next moment. Now, this doesn't catch our attention too much, because the situation we're being reborn in, moment to moment to moment, seems very familiar. And if you know anything about the mind, this mind fills in the gaps. It, it has a, maybe it's a survival mechanism, or who knows, but it, it, uh, it has sort of a presumption of continuity, and it just makes it work, makes it look like that. We don't like discontinuity. One of the things that can happen in longer retreats when the mind is really balanced, really settled, is the um, sort of presumption of continuity begins to fall apart. And you'll get periods of time uh, in practice where the mind is simply noticing the discontinuity, like something's ended, and then this moment, although you, you, could, you haven't forgotten how to see continuity, but what's really apparent in this moment is how this moment is radically different reality than the previous moment. That moment literally ceased. It is gone, and this is like a different universe. I mean, it looks a lot the same, but it's literally a different place. And then when you start having that experience, then it starts to make sense, like how rebirth might work, where, of course, the scenery is going to change a lot more. And, you know, when you look at the trajectory of the body, it's one thing. But the mind isn't following the same trajectory of the body. So the body may cease, but in the next moment, if there are causes there, the mind will have the next moment of the mind wherever that will be. And it will find a place suitable for whatever's arising in that next moment of the mind. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's a sense of awe or gratitude for a life well lived. Who knows? 
the confusion. And then here we are, confused, you know, baby in a womb somewhere, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> if we're lucky. <laughs> but the idea is that uh, moment to moment there's rebirth. And this is something that is directly experienceable. We can see how moment to moment is a rebirth. And there maybe are some even more specific times in your life where you really felt that, like, whatever that was is over and gone. And this is something new. In the more cathartic moments where something was dropped and, like, there's literally a sense of a different being in the next moment. And this is often how rebirth is described in the Buddhist tradition, is there is a continuity, but there's no body who's there continuously. And so, like, for example, um, taking a candle and lighting another candle, and then taking that second candle and lighting a third candle, taking that third candle, lighting a fourth candle. Now, there's some continuity, there's some relationship between that initial flame, which is maybe over here, if it's still burning, and the hundredth candle down the line. They're kind of the same, and they're kind of not the same. So there is a connection from moment to moment, from birth to birth, perhaps. But it's not really the sense of a somebody. This is from... Maybe I'll save this for... Oh, no, I'll re- we got a little bit of time. I'll read a little bit from... Annie Olensky has a new book that's mostly taken from um, articles he's written in the Insight Journal and other places over the years. It's called Unlimiting Mind, and this is a chapter, Whose Life Is This Anyway? I don't know many people in this country who really believe in rebirth, do you? I often meet Buddhists of various sorts, and yet it seems that most, like myself, have inherited from their cultural upbringing the one life to live model of the human condition. It makes me wonder how much of classical Buddhism we are really able to absorb, really capable of absorbing. When we see how much of who we are now is embedded in our uh, habitual responses to specific conditions in a world, we each create from our unique illusions. What could it mean to be ourselves in another lifetime? If we have a different body and gender, If our upbringing, language, and learning, our memories, dreams, and attitudes are all different, then how much sense does it still make to call such a person myself? Buddhist doctrine has an answer for this, of course. It doesn't even make sense now for you to call yourself yourself, let alone in another rebirth. This sense of self is just an assumption from which all of our suffering emerge, all our sufferings emerge. The central teaching of Buddhism is to let go of this illusory sense of self. Lay down body and mind. Cure yourself of the need to believe you are something coherent, independent, or exceptionally meaningful. And when we at least hold that intellectually, then it's a little bit easier. In the same way that so many aspects of nature keep becoming something else. You know, even our bodies, even though life, in a sense, ends, 
the process of the body just continues, you know, it breaks down, it becomes other things. That, that's that law in physics, right? What is it called? Conservation of energy? Is that what it's called? Hmm? Matter. Matter. Conservation. Oh, conservation of matter. Thanks. Yeah, where there's nothing ceases. It's always on the way to becoming something else. A little bit more I want to read before we end. The Buddhist tradition offers up useful metaphors to help understand rebirth, like milk changing to curds, then changing to butter, then changing again to ghee. Each manifestation is so very unlike each of the others in their particulars, and yet the causal thread connecting them is so evident. So I am the heir, perhaps, of the deeds of someone long dead. So we can just consider this next paragraph that I'm going to read, reflect on it. So I am now the heir, perhaps, of the deeds of someone long dead. I am grateful to that person and presumably to many before her, for the karma I have inherited. For the karma I have inherited has been fortunate. But I don't relate to that person as having been me. I am somebody that is defined by my body, nationality, language, and by my unique blend of neuroses, all of which are born of and conditioned by the specific context of this particular life. I appreciate my formal, former self as an ancestor, but unless I have some direct experience of what it is like to be that person, it's all rather abstract. We are given the great gifts of a life, of life and consciousness, perhaps from an immeasurably long line of beings, more or less appropriately called former selves. We are also given a material world with a delicate ecosystem to support our current needs, and as a special bonus, it is populated with a lot of other beings with whom we share it all. And that is about the extent of what we directly experience. Is this an impoverished picture of the human situation? I think not. Who needs to reach beyond all this wonder surrounding us? Consciousness, nature, other beings, a mind and heart that fashion such nuanced constructions. Who needs to feel they will survive their death, either as a transcendent conscious soul residing in heaven or re-entering nature again and again. What we are given is precious enough, a moment of awareness. And if we are fortunate, another and another. It is a sense of gratitude I feel for my forebearer and all her predecessors, and it's a sense of responsibility and benevolence. And I think this is the important point here. It's a sense of responsibility and benevolence I feel for whatever I will become next. Perhaps an astronaut or some other future profession unknown today. Someone will be the heir of my karma, of all my actions, my words, and even the fruits of my thoughts. At a moment of my death, I will have spent a lifetime crafting a self which I must then hand over to somebody else, and she too will take what I have nurtured, will creatively renovate it, and then give it up when her life comes, when her time comes. So that's something also to reflect on in the small groups is, let's, let's imagine um, the whole way to relate to karma is in terms of generosity. It's like to freely receive what was given, 
as imperfect as whatever we have, we are, I shouldn't say we have, but we are constantly receiving from the past, whether it's a specific stream of mind, a specific mind stream, you know, that has some coherence, or some, some segment of a collective mind force, you know, who knows? Somebody I know well got a, an astrology chart done a lot, this was a long time ago in the 80s, and and it, it was interesting in that they said that uh, his he got it because he was getting married, and they both got their charts done. And the astrologist said something like, "Yeah, in the previous life you were the same person, and you've split now, and you're working as two people." <laughs> I had no idea if any of that could possibly be true. But I think it, what's nice about that is just to keep an open mind. Like we really like, as a person, we really like this coherent stream. Like I was in the past, I will become in the future. That it might be much more of a collective sort of thing. That aspects of the mind stream, you know, what we've set in motion through our actions and our thoughts, you know, some of them might collect over there. But once we understand karma, we can have some certainty that there will be effects of what's been set in motion. And so we can be grateful, gratefully receive whatever our business it is to receive in this life, and then take a, have a sense of responsibility for the thoughts and the words and the actions we're acting out, because we're going to be handing this off to the collective or to another individual at some point. And it will matter what we've done. It will matter what we've said and thought. And doesn't that change our attitude? It changes my attitude. It's like, oh yeah. Because it's so easy to justify little leakages. Ah, it doesn't matter. But what happens if it actually matters? You know, that some being will collectively, a group or individually, somebody, some people, will have to work with whatever we are setting in motion now. Whatever greed, whatever aversion, whatever disconnection or delusion. So anyway, that, that could be something might be useful to bring up in the small group tonight. We'll continue this conversation next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.